everyone, this is Abby Alcox with Badgerland Journal, back at it again with another episode. This episode is actually dated to, not dated, dedicated to the Hermans family, specifically Dan Hermans, because I know he's going a little stir crazy. Hope this helps with a little bit of entertainment um, headed your way. Alright, so today it should be an entertaining episode. Because we are going to talk about a presidential assassination attempt that occurred in Milwaukee. Okay, like, it, I mean, it is a presidential, but he wasn't president at the time. But he was running for office. But he didn't win the election. If you haven't figured out yet, I'm talking about the assassination attempt of Theodore Roosevelt in his third-party presidential bid. So, let's just dive on into it. So, a little bit of background. This is the presidential election of 1912, and it is a very, very contentious election. Because Roosevelt has actually already been president for two terms. And if you guys remember in history class, it's not law at this point, But there has been a precedent that has been set by George Washington. That he stepped down after two terms. And kind of deference for this, every other president went, Well, I am not as good as George Washington, the first president. So therefore, I am only going to serve the same number of terms as him. I'm not going to go beyond that. And there's only been two presidents who have... mm, tried to buck this tradition. And fun fact, they both were Roosevelt's. But we're going to talk about Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. But the other one, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he actually causes a constitutional amendment to be passed to prevent any president from ever serving more than two terms again. And he's actually, FDR is the only one to serve more than two terms. Teddy tried, but he failed. But we'll get into that. Anyways, so Roosevelt, he's been president for two terms. He handpicks his successor, which is William Taft. And Taft is supposed to, you know, pretty much just be a continuation of Roosevelt's policies, his presidency. However, Roosevelt is critical of Taft's administration. You know, he's doing similar things. He's busting trusts, um, trying to implement some more progressive reforms. But Taft really sees his role as a pres- as the president as kind of, you know, just a guardian. He's not there to really make legislation or to make policies. He's just there to approve it, to kind of carry out these laws. He leaves a lot of that up to Congress. Teddy Roosevelt, he had kind of a different output. He thought that the executive should drive policy. They should be more involved. They should take on a stronger role. And Taft just wasn't that. So in the election of 1912 comes up, Taft is running for re-election, and Roosevelt says, no, I want to be the Republican nominee. And he will actually go to the National Republican National Convention and try and get support there. But the Republicans go, no, 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 no. 
we are gonna go with Taft because it is pretty well known that it is hard to unseat a sitting president. It's not impossible, but you have a better chance if, you know, you're already president. You got name recognition, people just like same old, same old, go along with the flow. So the Republicans go, we're back in Taft. And so Roosevelt went, fine. I don't need no Republican party anyways. And <laughs> he creates his own party. He calls it the Progressive Party, but it is better known by its nickname, the Bull Moose Party. And this comes from on the campaign trail. He said, I feel as fit as a bull moose. Cause you know, Teddy Roosevelt kind of has this macho man personality, you know, wilderness, like tough. It's kind of interesting because he was kind of a sickly child. And so it's almost like maybe a little overcompensation of like weak as a child and he wants to overcome that. So anyways, he was running on progressive ideals of like child labor laws, minimum wage, labor regulations. I think there's a little bit of women's suffragette in there as well. And so this is actually Taft, Roosevelt, and then Woodrow Wilson is all are all running for the presidential nomination or presidential election. They're running to be president. I can speak, thank you very much. But they're all running in the election of 1912. And this was a heated campaign. Um, it's already just kind of crazy because you have Roosevelt going against his hand-picked successor. Some people saw Roosevelt as dividing his own party. Um, others saw him as a power-hungry politician who was trying to break this tradition. And actually at one point, one point uh, in the campaign, somebody had tried attacking Roosevelt and he used jujitsu to stop them. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I think I would pay more attention to presidential campaigns if they started like jujitsu-sing, jujitsu-ing people. Um, you know, like, just can you imagine like Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Obama, George W. Bush, just like, although didn't George W. Bush, like somebody like threw a shoe at him, I think, at a co press conference. Okay, this is getting off track, but it's just interesting that you had a president who like literally like stopped his attacker with self-defense. Anyways, so this was already off to a crazy start, but was what was unknown to Roosevelt and his staff was he was actually being stalked during this campaign. He was actually being stalked three weeks prior to his speech here in Milwaukee. I say here because I'm actually in Milwaukee right now. And so he's three weeks, he's going across eight different states during this time making speeches and he's being followed by a na man named John Schrank. Schrank was actually an immigrant from Bavaria, which is part of Germany. When he arrived to America, he was with his parents and they shortly thereafter passed away. And before this kind of all occurred where he started stalking Roosevelt, he had his girlfriend as well as his aunt and uncle who had taken care of him pass away in a very short period of time. So a lot of people that he loved uh, dying, it was very stressful, not to justify shooting someone, but he also had a dream where he was visited by President McKinley. <laughs> 
Now, President McKinley at this point is dead. And we'll get into that. But he comes to Shrank and says, Theodore Roosevelt is responsible for my death. And I want you to help avenge me. So, William McKinley, you know, McKinley and Roosevelt aren't actually unconnected. Because McKinley was the president at the time. And he ends up being shot by a anarchist. And he will die from the bullet wounds. And when I say he doesn't really die from being shot, uh, there is question of whether the medical malpractice by the doctors is more what caused his death because they were like digging around, not giving him proper care. And then he died like a month after being shot. But so he was shot and who becomes president? None other than Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was given the position of vice president because he was always kind of a wild card. No one could ever say that Teddy Roosevelt was predictable because he pretty much quit a job, I think it was like Secretary of the Navy, to go fight in the Rough Riders in the, I think it was the Spanish-American War. So, you know, he's got some, he's got some cojones on him. But they're going, okay, Roosevelt, he's a Republican. We don't know what to do with him. He won't just like sit down and shut up and do what we say. So like, what's a good position that he will be appeased by, but he can't really do any harm. And they went, the vice president. The vice president is a great place for him. Because honestly, the vice president doesn't do a whole lot. Occasionally they break a tie in the Senate, uh, but overall they're not implementing policies, they're not doing a ton. It's kind of a filler role. The only problem with putting a wild card in the vice presidency is they are one person away from being president, and that is exactly what happens. So Leon has this dream that McKinley blames Roosevelt for his death, and he needs needs avenging. So then fast forward to October 14th, 1912. Roosevelt is on his way to Milwaukee. He's actually taking a train from, I'm probably from Chicago, but he has few short stops in Racine and Kenosha where each location has about 5,000 people gathered at the train station to see Roosevelt, to hear him speak, you know, And he pretty much just speaks for like five minutes and then the train rolls on. However, his doctors were kind of just going like, can you stop doing this? Like we, for health reasons, they said like one speaking engagement a day in a like enclosed space. So they're like, stop speaking to people. Stop overexerting yourself. Did he listen? Absolutely not. So people in Wisconsin were excited to see Roosevelt. And so before he heads to his speech in Milwaukee, he stops at the Gilpatrick Hotel where he is staying. As he is leaving the hotel to enter into his car, there is a crowd around him. And all of a sudden he is shot from about five feet away by, and this was a uh, Colt revolver. And so the crowd immediately reacts Roosevelt's stenographer. So this is the guy who literally follows Roosevelt around and just like jots down his speech. So then there's like a record of what he said. 
he like jumps into action. He grabs Shrank, puts him in like a half Nelson, which I don't even know what that fully looks like. My brother Sam put his dog Clyde into a full Nelson one time, which was the first time I was introduced to what a Nelson was. But I don't know what that would really look like. Maybe I can ask Sam to put Clyde into a half Nelson for me. I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. (laughs) And so he puts him into a half Nelson and then he grabs his wrist to prevent him from shooting again. And at this point, the crowd who has come to see Roosevelt is riled up. They want to kill this man. They're like, how dare you shoot Teddy Roosevelt? And Roosevelt actually calms the crowd down and says, like, don't, don't kill them. Don't kill them. And he, like, kind of motions for them to bring Shrank over to him. And Roosevelt's, you know, asking, he's like, why did you do this? Why did you shoot me? And Shrank just stares at him and is silent. Doesn't say anything. And so then Roosevelt goes, okay, whatever. And he motions him to be taken away by the police. So Roosevelt enters his car that he originally was trying to enter. He coughs three times into his handkerchief, looks at it, sees that there is no blood, and then decides that he has not been hit in the lung and therefore does not need immediate medical attention. Which I feel like there's still a lot of places that you can be shot that you may not be shot in the lung that still would be good to... I think if you've been shot, you should go to the hospital. I think that's my that's my official position. It's the, the position of Badgerland Journal. But that's not what he did. Instead, after determining he's not been hit in the lungs, he says to take him to the auditorium where he's supposed to speak. The doctors who are in the car with him directed the driver like, no, go to the hospital. This man has been shot, needs medical attention. But Teddy Roosevelt's like, nope, I'm overruling you. We're going to the auditorium. Which it sounds like he overruled people a lot, even when it probably wasn't in his best self-interest. So he arrives at the Milwaukee Auditorium. He was speaking to around 9,000 to 12,000 people. And he starts his speech with, quote, Friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. I don't know whether you fully understand that I have been shot, end quote. He then opens up his coat jacket to show his bloody shirt, pulls out his 50-page speech, which at first I thought was a excessive amount, but then I thought about the fact that it takes probably, well, granted, I don't know how his spacing was on this speech, but if you have about two minutes per page, that would bring you to about 100 minutes, which is roughly the amount of time that Teddy Roosevelt talked after he was shot. Because he gave the speech for around 90 minutes, an hour and a half. And at times he would stop to take a drink of water because, you know, your, your mouth gets parched. I do the same. And when he would do this, the doctors who were around him tried to advise him to stop talking and let them take him to the hospital. And he just ignored them and would glare at them. And fun fact, the Wisconsin State Historical Society has the very glass he was drinking out of when he gave this speech. Crazy, right? Just looked like normal glass, but no, it was 
the glass Teddy Roosevelt drank from as he's giving a speech with a bullet in his chest. Although we'll get to it, he pretty much had a bullet in his chest for the rest of his life. In addition, he, when he was speaking, he had shortened breath and a weakened voice, which, you know, again, makes sense if you just got shot. And aides were begging him to stop. Once again, he glared at them anytime they tried to intervene. Intervene. And he would eventually go to the hospital after the end of his speech. So he is rushed to Milwaukee's Johnson Hospital, Emergency Hospital. Johnson's Emergency Hospital. Milwaukee's Johnson Emergency Hospital. I can speak. There you go. Anyways, so it was around 1230 in the morning when he actually boarded a train to go to Chicago's Mercy Hospital. Because apparently Milwaukee's hospitals aren't good enough for Teddy Roosevelt. But let's be honest, Chicago during this time probably had more resources than Milwaukee did better medical staff. So the x-ray showed that the bullet had been slowed by his overcoat, a steel reinforced glass case, and his 50 page speech. And so that's kind of what had slowed down the bullet. Cause if you think about it, like five feet is point blank range. <laughs> Like, usually bullets do pretty good damage at point-blank range. As I mentioned earlier, the doctors believed it would be better to leave the bullet in his chest, despite, despite the fact that the bullet was located by Roosevelt's fourth rib on his right side, and it was very close to his heart. But, you know, I'm not a doctor. He seemed to live on for a couple of years after. <laughs> I forgot when Roosevelt died. Um... But anyways, afterwards, Roosevelt writing to his friend, John St. Louis Strachey, Strachey, we're going with Strachey, that he believed that Schrank was not a madman, which was actually incorrect. And rather, he had a dis distorted, disordered brain that, like most criminals and some non-criminals, that like caused his irrational behavior. And clearly, he had some sense to him because he had not shot him in a southern state where he said, you know, he would have been lynched immediately. Which, to be fair, the people in Wisconsin seemed to want to kill him too, so I'm not sure that was a fair criticism. But anyways, so he was actually kind of a madman. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, so he may have had some- he would give a few reasons why he did this. Um, but, like, he, he was mentally ill. He needed help. Um, so, what ends up happening to Shrank is he's first sent to the Northern Hospital for the Insane in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And this is before he's sent to his final destination, which was the Central State Hospital in Wupon. It is reported that he was taken by train from Oshkosh um, November, he's taken by train to Oshkosh, November 25th, 1917, when he was looking out into, like, the Wisconsin wilderness, somebody supposedly said to him, like, oh, do you like hunting? And he is supposed to have replied, or responded, only bull moose, <laughs> which harkens back to the name of 
the Bull Moose Party. In fact, I believe part of the speech Roosevelt gave after he announced he'd been shot, he said, you know, it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. So, you know, everyone's just throwing around the bull moose references. So, as I mentioned, he was eventually sent to Wapan, um, where he would die in 1943. He actually outlived Roosevelt by 24 years. So, if you're ever in, in Milwaukee visiting, staying in a hotel, and you happen to stay at the Hyatt Regency on Kilbourne Avenue, you are actually standing in the hotel that used to be the Gilpatrick Hotel. And there's a plaque commemorating the assassination attempt. So I believe it was only two or three weeks later after the assassination attempt that the election of 1912 occurred and Roosevelt and Taft lost. Woodrow Wilson became president. And so this actually turns to an interesting conversation I want to have with you really quickly. Okay, maybe not quickly which is about third parties, because Roosevelt in these, this election received 27% of the popular vote in this election, making him the highest third party candidate to ever gain this amount of support. He had more than Taft. Taft had 23% of the national vote. So critics of Roosevelt saying that he was splitting the party up, um, ruining which I talked to my dad about this and he thinks there's a chance Roosevelt knew, there's a high chance Roosevelt knew what he was doing when he ran as a third party. That the likelihood that you win is very low and the likelihood that you split the ticket is very high. So it's interesting, so we're going to do a mini history lesson because there's only two other times that third party candidates, you know, had a real, like, I believe there's only two other times that they won electoral votes and had a real impact on the election. And that is George Wallace in 1968, I believe. Yes, 1968. He won 13.5% of the vote, which was a lot less than Teddy Roosevelt and not as well as the other third party candidate, Ross Perot, we're going to talk about. But he would have been considered more of a Southern Democrat. And so he took votes likely from Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon was able to win that election. And maybe that wasn't the swaying factor, but you know, probably played into it. And then you had Ross Perot, who he wasn't even really a politician. He was uh, running on like controlling the debt. And so he would have been more of a Republican and he ended up with 18.9% of the popular vote. And obviously the popular vote doesn't really tell you too much, but it does give you an idea that these were impactful campaign campaigns. And this election was between George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton ended up winning that election. So the point being, third party candidates can oftentimes pull from mainstream parties and influence the outcome of the election. They don't often win, but whoever they're taking away votes from can kind of divide that ticket up. And the reason I want to point this out is there has been a lot of talk with the 2024 election of the possibility of a third candidate. Because there are people who, you know, 
on both sides who kind of go like, we don't want Donald Trump as a candidate or we don't want Joe Biden as a candidate or maybe if Trump runs as a third candidate, I don't know. But having three major candidates who have the ability to take away votes from one another could be a deciding factor in this upcoming election. So it's going to be really interesting to to see how that plays out if there's a third party candidate. Maybe there's not, but it'll be interesting to see. I would love to know your thoughts of what, you know, what do you think about when a third candidate runs? Is it a good thing? Should it not happen because it takes away from the two major parties? You know, let me know your thoughts because I want to hear them. And before you go, I do have a favor to ask. If you have not already, go like us on Facebook at Badgerland Journal. But if you're already following us on Badgerland Journal, I would really appreciate it if you could go to our page. There's a button that has like reviews or ratings. If you click on that, it asks, would you recommend this podcast? If you could like recommend it and maybe leave me a nice comment, that would be great. It would, it would be great. But you can check us out on Facebook, as I mentioned, or on Instagram. Both of those are at Badgerland Journal. And then if you'd like to send me an email, you can check me out at, at, uh, not at, (laughs) you can check me out at badgerlandjournal at gmail.com. Let me know any suggestions you may have, comments, questions. It doesn't have to be about this episode. If you have questions about a previous episode, let me know. I love to hear from you all. Until next time, keep it cheesy. (laughs) 